Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm the host of the show. Today, I'm thrilled to have Gina Herman and Sarah Brennis on the show. For longtime listeners, I spoke with Sarah a while back about her, about her book, Spaniards in Mauthausen. She's now teamed up with Gina Herman to co-edit a really significant collection of essays about Spain and the Holocaust. Titled Spain, the Second World War, and the Holocaust, History and Representation, the book offers 33 essays on a variety of topics, ranging from the role of anti-Semitism in pre-war Spanish culture to literary representations of the Holocaust in contemporary Spain. Uh, it, it's a fabulous book uh, and one that's long been needed, and I'm looking forward to talking about it. So, Sarah and Gina, welcome, and thanks for joining us in New Books and Genocide Studies. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Kelly. So I'm thrilled to have you back in the show, Sarah, and I'm thrilled to meet you, Gina. I know that, Sarah, uh, a while back you introduced yourself, but Gina is not. So, so I'd like each of you just to take a moment to, to, to say a little bit about yourselves and how you got interested in the history and culture and language of, of Spain and, and, and how you ended up as, as teachers at a university. And, and Gina, maybe we'll start with you and then go to Sarah. So I am a professor of Spanish and interim director of Judaic studies at the University of Oregon. And I've long been fascinated by the Spanish Civil War, a topic that captured my imagination when I was uh, undergraduate studying abroad in Seville. And I had a Spanish boyfriend who said to me, don't you understand that this is still a fascist neighborhood that I live in? And and being a naive California girl, I I couldn't wrap my mind around the idea that there could still be remnants of fascism in Spain, such was my lack of education. And that started me on what would become a career-long investigation, a sustained investigation about anti-fascist resistance in Spain. And Sarah and I were teamed up uh, in in part thanks to a a colleague and and friend in common. And in 2012, we put together a panel at the Kentucky Foreign Language Conference about concentration camps that uh, imprisoned Spanish anti-fascist exiles or refugees. And from that conference, Um, Our mutual interests um, cohered, and we both attended a summer institute at Northwestern University called the Holocaust Education Foundation. Sarah, what year was that? 2013. In 2013. And sitting together in the dorms at Northwestern, we decided that it was long overdue to create a volume representing scholars from all over the world and from different disciplines who could address the ways in which Spain was implicated in both World War II, so both in the violence of the war and in the destruction of European Jewry. And Spain was technically non-belligerent, which made the question extremely complicated to address. And we sat together and we 
penciled out some very initial ideas and that was the that was the origin of what's now a 800 page <laughs> I, I for those of you listeners who have not heard of the HEF summer symposium at Northwestern it's a wonderful thing I attended a few years back before Gina and Sarah and it's been really influential in my teaching and in my research and, and, and it's well worth looking into and I had I, I remember those kind of late night conversations in the dormitory in ways that um, probably would disturb my students that I took such joy in talking about such horrible things, but, but it was really meaningful to me. Sarah, how about you? Well, I had a similar introduction to Spain's history as Gina as a university student studying abroad in Madrid for my junior year. Um, I know I fell in love with Spanish culture and history. I had interesting conversations with my host brother and his boyfriend about, you know, Spain's transition to democracy, and then other interesting conversations with my host mother about Spain's dictatorship period. Um, so I, you know, started down my career path, similar to Gina, just sort of falling in love with, with all things Spain and being really fascinated by the different fissures in Spanish history and culture that brought about you know, not only the Spanish Civil War, but then the long dictatorship period. Um, and by the time, you know, I met Gina, um, she's being modest, but when we put together a panel at the, in Kentucky, I, uh, she was a big deal. And I was really excited that she was able to, to join this panel on Spain and the Holocaust that I put together. And you know, a, a few Kentucky bourbons later, and we had a real interesting uh, kind of outline of a book that we thought, you know, we, we dreamed about um, inviting a number of different scholars from the field to join us. We had no idea how, how many just, you know, incredible academics and, um, and historians and, you know, uh, people from, from this research field would, would join us in this book. But um, you know, we, we really hit it off and had similar kind of love for Spain, but also a real feeling that this field was underrepresented in, in scholarship on Spain and certainly even in scholarship on European history. So that's kind of where, where we started. So I wonder, so, so in your, your introduction, you talk about the process uh, and you talk about scholars going back and doing uh, archival work to flesh out the subjects of their chapters. And so, so this seems to me maybe a step above what is often the way people often think of, of collected essays, which is just a bunch of paper, papers uh, presented at a conference that have the word chapter inserted where paper used to be. Um, can you talk a little bit about process and how this worked? So we, when we came up with the outline for the book, and yeah, we really did flesh it out at, at Northwestern, we had in mind a number of people that we would hope could contribute to the volume, people that we had read as scholars in this field and people that we really felt like were experts um, in different nuances that we wanted to cover. But we also put out a call for papers so that we could get a wide swath of um, you know, graduate students, people who are early career scholars and people who are preeminent scholars in their field. We wanted to cast a really wide net. And so between the uh, number of folks who responded to the call for papers, we were able to actually augment what we had already thought of our outline with new new chapters, new thematic threads, 
Um, and then we, we reached out to a few people, um, as I said, preeminent scholars in the field with sort of the hope that maybe some of them would respond and got just this tremendous response from um, a number of people whom we both really admired. Um, so it, was a, it, it came together as a really uh, organic mix of people we'd never heard of, but who were doing really interesting research and folks who are you know, have, have long published in this field and that we admired uh, from the get-go. So let's turn to the book. Uh, and Gina, I'm interested, maybe as a way to start this discussion, the book is titled Spain, the Second World War and the Holocaust. And when you talked earlier, you talked about the, you used the word implicated. So maybe you could talk about why you chose to present the title this way and what it says about your sense of Spain's role? Well, as we note in the introduction, and I'm just going to flip through the pages here since I have it at hand, um, we noted that there are two key paradoxes that frame the question of what was Spain doing during these years? And what was Spain doing from the end of the Spanish Civil War to 1945? A country that was absolutely decimated by its own civil war. People were dying of hunger. About half a million Spaniards fled across the border up into France. Tens, if not hundreds of thousands of Republicans were imprisoned. What was Spain doing? And there were two ideas. One was that, well, Spain just sat out the war. And the other was that at the same time that Spain sat out the war, they were also heroically helping to save Jews. And I remember my mother, who's Israeli, said to me, oh, in her very thick Israeli accent, Franco saved a lot of Jews. I said, well, mom, that's really not true. And she said, I read a book. It's true. (laughs) And so Sarah and I wanted to have as our point of departure these two paradoxes. One is this legend that Franco decided to open arms to Jews around the world, and the other that that Spain set out the war. And from from our desire to um, unpack these myths or these commonly held ideas held by people, Jews all around the world, held by, especially among American Jews, and um, also held by Spaniards um, who see themselves as having been non-belligerent or neutral during the war, we decided to really hone in on the ways in which we could sort of prick these these bubbles in in different disciplinary ways and in in different directions. Um, what, What would you add to that, Sarah? No, I think that one thing I would add is that we had some initial pushback on the combination of, you know, both the Holocaust and the Second World War in terms of Spain, because because of the notion that these are very separate uh, experiences and that certainly um, in my own research, because I and Gina as well had been looking at, you know, anti-fascist Republican Spaniards who were deported to concentration camps, 
the notion that we had somehow conflated their experience with Jews in the Holocaust gave us some initial, there was some initial pushback against combining these two themes. But as Gina just said, the way we envisioned them were not, not to make some claim that, to equate experiences, but rather to say that all of these different factors were happening at the same time in the same geographic space with many of the same actors. And that, that again, is where we decided that we needed to um, push back against the myths, but also lay things out in a way where we could juxtapose different things that were happening at the same time in the same historical period. What Sarah describes is, was the greatest source of anxiety, I think, at the beginning of the project, as well as the greatest intellectual challenge. So at least two of the scholars who eventually contributed to the volume, when we sent our initial proposal asking them for feedback, were, as Sarah says, quite skeptical that somehow the, the project was attempting to equate um, different kinds of victims of, of Nazi terror. And I actually made a personal trip to Jerusalem <laughs> to convince one contributor of the um, sort of the, the, the the ethical coherence of the project that we were that that we were developing, and so I'm excited and very pleased, and I think Sarah is too, as well as our contributors, that this is something that required a great deal of nuance, constantly distinguishing between the war and the extermination of Jews and the persecution of non-Jewish. Spanish Republicans and their allies. So this was something that had to be continually massaged and attended to uh, in each chapter, in our introduction, and by our contributors. And I, I'm pleased to say that I think we've, we managed to accomplish what, what we set out to do, and that is not separate the Holocaust from World War II, but understand them as mutual implicating uh, historical and representational phenomena. Mm -hmm. So as, as the three of us talked before, we recognize that we're not going to be able to talk in detail uh, about all of the ideas and all of the themes and all of the authors that are represented. But there, there are some places where I'd, I'd like to um, chat about the material of the book, and we'll get to your essays in a minute. But, but I thought I'd start, um, my guess is for the audience, that the audience is less familiar with uh, Spain and, and the role of Spain in these events than they would be of other countries. So, so maybe you could start, and I'll just ask Sarah to start with this. I'll just use the subtitle of one of your chapters. What, what was the place of Jews in Spanish national identity before the Franco period? Well, so the starting point has to be 1492, right? Mm -hmm. Because Spain, Spain, the Spanish Inquisition, the, um, you know, the, the exile of Spanish Jews off the Iberian Peninsula, the conversion, the mass conversion of Jews in Spain, essentially created a base in which by the 18th, 19th century, we have a continent that claims to be free of Jews, but that of course still has a uh, presence of Sephardic Jews, also for, uh, people who had, who had in, in in some in manners had converted, but were still practicing Jews, but had an in, incredibly complicated uh, relationship to to um, Jews on the Spanish on the Spanish in the Spanish Peninsula. 
um, so that we get to some of our, our authors write about the philo-Sephardism mm -hmm. in which this one particular, you know, Sephardic Jew becomes sort of emblematic or the, the sort of, you know, the, the, the sought after um, Jewish figure on the Spanish peninsula. But it's also sort of this uh, undercurrent of anti-Semitism that runs through Spain in the 18th, 19th century and takes us well into the 20th century. So that by the time we get to the Spanish Civil War, the 30s in Spain, and Jews were among Franco's, you know, sought after the Masons, the Bolsheviks, and the Jews. This, these were his, his enemies during the Spanish Civil War and during the Franco dictatorship. And as much as, you know, um, I think, well, I think one, many of our authors quote this notion that Spain had, had resolved its quote unquote Jewish problem mm -hmm. by the time that we reached the Spanish Civil War, um, there's still, there, there's still um, an, an, a continuing undercurrent of anti-Semitism, of this feeling that Jews still threatened the Iberian Peninsula with their presence. And then when we get to World War II, the idea that, uh, as Gina was describing, this myth that Franco somehow flung the doors open uh, through Spain so that Jews could find safe passage, which is indeed a myth. Franco put up and his regime put up as many obstacles as they possibly could to Jews fleeing Nazi persecution in Europe and did very little indeed to even reach out to the Sephardic Jews, Jews of Spanish national descent who lived in parts of Europe and Eastern Europe where they were under threat by the Nazis. So that's where we start the story. I don't know, Gina, if you wanna to add to that. Yes, there were, there were a very tiny Jewish population living in Spain at the time. Um, Spain was essentially Judenrein and had been for hundreds of years. And yet, as Sarah says, the memory of the of Sepharad, of the 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 mid the age of of convivencia in the south of Spain remains an important part of collective Spanish identity. That said. During the war, there was a request from the Nazis to produce something called the Jewish Archive, el, el Archivo Judaico, which was a census that was um, requested so that names and addresses of Jews living in Spain, some of whom came from, from other countries and were not Sephardic, but any uh, Jew residing in Spain should be uh, somehow registered in the census. Uh, there's evidence that the census was created. What we mm. don't know is whether or not the document was eventually handed over to, to Himmler. But the point is that uh, the Franco regime was at the ready to comply with mm. um, a request to account for those Spaniards um, of Jewish identity or Jewish foreign nationals residing in Spain. Um, to what use that that list might have been uh, put, we 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 don't know, but we can imagine. So, so you've both mentioned this myth that Franco was willing and 
and will both was willing and willingly participated in an effort to allow Jews refuge, if not to rescue. Where'd that myth come from? The myth came from, in large part, uh, American rescue agencies. And, and the colleagues in the volume who deal with this most carefully are Chaim Avni, uh, Israeli scholar, and um, Jacobo Israel Garçon, and also um, uh, Pedro Correa, who's worked extensively on, on the history of the uh, Franco as the savior of the Jews. So the situation is quite complex. Um, one nut that was very hard for me in particular to crack was I did not understand when we first began this project, I didn't understand well enough which Jews were crossing the Pyrenees to escape. So you have these these parallel exiles, you have, in both, in both cases, you have Spaniards fleeing fascism in Spain heading north, and you have Jews fleeing, ex, fleeing fascism in, in Europe heading south. So you have these two groups trying to escape fascism moving in, in, in opposite directions across the border of the Pyrenees. And what we ended up discovering through a lot of research and discussion, especially with historian Josep Calvet, is that it was primarily Ashkenazi Jews who had crossed the Pyrenees um, in, into Spain. Um, Ashkenazi Jews had fled from all, many countries in Europe. They, they converge in France and they, uh, they go to Marseille. They go to, um, they go to the escape routes on the, on the, on the, um, on the Bay of Biscay, they're in the Catalan area trying to cross over. The situation with the Sephardic Jews is very different. And this is primarily where the myth of, of Franco as a savior of the Jews stems from. And that is that at first there was a decree in the 20s that anyone claiming Sephardic um, uh, legacy could claim Spanish um, nationality. So you had Sephardic Jews um, in Greece and North Africa who, and in Eastern Europe who primarily stayed put during the war because Spanish diplomats working absolutely independently as lone wolves without any direction from the Franco regime make the decision that they have to behave in a humane and ethical way and attempt to save as many originally Sephardic Jews as they could in their areas. The most famous case being Hungary, but there were also these diplomats in France and Greece. Well, Sarah? Uh, yeah, Turkey, I think, Turkey. right. And, and we have a long chapter that addresses this, but it's amazing that these diplomats, you know, it helped them find safe passage, helped them get passports. And they were going, not only were they not listening to the Franco regime, they were going directly against orders from the Franco regime to leave these people to their, to their fate with the Nazis. Um, but then it gets conflated in the Franco regime after World War II, as you know, in the 50s, as the regime's trying to open up and court 
you know, the U.S. goodwill. Um, that's when they start to sort of retool this myth into saying, well, it was actually the regime's mandate that allowed these diplomats to to help to help Jews escape uh, out of out of different centers in Europe and through and through Spain, where it was absolutely not. So, in fact, the majority of these Sephardic Jews ended up staying in place because what what the Spanish diplomats would do is a lot is create a legation, hang the Spanish flag, say this is Spanish territory, and once they started to produce passports or protective documents for the Sephardic Jews, they said, we're just going to, we're going to produce as many as we can. We're also going to help Ashkenazi Jews. The vast majority of those Jews stayed in place and survived the war in their home countries. Um, But part of the conflation, I think, uh, comes from this idea that those who were crossing the border from France into Spain were the same group that was being helped by these lone wolf diplomats. So the story becomes very muddled when you're trying to figure out which agents of the regime are acting independently and which agents of the regime are essentially in a very quick moving and unpredictable way, change policy and decisions and rules about who can cross the Spanish-French border at any given time. So one never knew if, if on a particular week the border guards would be sympathetic to allowing Jews to cross into Spain or not. But it's very important and something that's distinguished, I think, well in our book is that Ashkenazi and Sephardic Jews faced different kinds of fates and policies with regard to the Franco regime. So I was going to ask you, because each of you wrote an essay for this volume about camps. Well, Sarah, you wrote about Mauthausen. We'll get to you in a minute. Gina, you, you wrote about Ravensbrück. So, so maybe you could just briefly for the audience, if, if they're not aware of Ravensbrück, what is Ravensbrück? What, what, what is the purpose of that camp? And what kind of Spanish exiles ended up there? So Ravensbrück was a Nazi camp for women, um, not far from Berlin, mm-hmm. in a very beautiful lake town, spa town. And women who were deported there um, remark how the juxtaposition between the beauty and the, the quaintness of the town um, was devastating. The juxtaposition between uh, such a lovely, verdant environment and, and the horrors of the camp. Uh, Ravensbrück saw many uh, anti-fascist European women prisoners. It was not a death camp. It was a labor to death camp. And Spanish and Catalan women ended up in Ravensbrück as part of the deportation of French resistance members. So when Spanish women um, fled across the border in, in 39. Most of them were not sent to the French concentration camps, but were rather held in sort of buildings that had been taken over, repurposed. Uh, they could have been convents or schools or abandoned hospitals or health centers or orphanages. And uh, women would go and visit their, their menfolk in, in, in the camps close by. And eventually these women got jobs as domestic servants or um, worked in in factories. 
Uh, these women, many of them decided that they needed to continue the anti-fascist struggle. Of course, the hope for all of the Spanish Republicans was that um, in defeating Hitler and Mussolini, Franco would fall as well. These women became couriers, armed combatants. They ran um, mimeograph machines. They took care of injured um, resistance fighters. And eventually, many of them were caught. They were sent to prisons in uh, France. And from there, they awaited deportation to concentration camps, the vast majority of them went to Ravensbrück. The reason why understanding the history of Spanish and Catalan women detained at Ravensbrück is so difficult from a historiographic standpoint is that most of them were captured and deported with their French aliases, their, their nom de guerre. So we never will have a full accounting of how many Spanish and Catalan women were detained at Ravensbrück. Most women were not held in the main camp of Ravensbrück for a significant period of time. They were sent to satellite camps where they engaged in labor of munitions. And their story, as I outline in my chapter, is really one of a continued anti-fascist resistance. This is the most important blueprint of identity for Spanish and Catalan women. They want to talk about how even under potentially deadly circumstances, they were going to exercise their ingenuity to sabotage uh, production of munitions. And this was the best, aside from the acts of solidarity and sharing food and morale lifting and, and, and forming camp sisterhoods, the main way in which they decided to continue to battle against fascism, always with an eye to the future of the defeat of Franco, was by sabotaging um, their, their labor details. So women talked about um, spitting in gunpowder, in drilling extra large holes. Um, they would crush up flies and mix them with different kinds of explosives. They would work uh, intentionally slowly to, to, um, to uh, retard the production, all of which were activities that would have um, meant certain execution had they been captured. So this, and this falls again into a larger um, discourse about the ways in which um, communists uh, imagine their anti-fascist identities, that it always must be linked to continual resistance and less to a story of, of suffering and persecution. Um, the women who survived the camps, um, and you, this is the great tragedy of the, of the Republican exile is that uh, the war is over and they can't go back to Spain. Um, so most of these women settle in France, have French children, and there are these very dramatic stories of when, these, when Franco dies within days, if not hours, um, husbands and wives pack up their cars and say, Sorry, kids, we're going back to Spain. 
so that it, many of them let you left their adult French children behind and could not wait to get back quickly enough to to their homeland. So it's these are uh, very um, stirring, inspirational moments at this particular time in our history. The more examples we can show young people of resistance to authoritarianism, the better. And I think that I th one hope that Sarah and I have for this volume is that it contributes to a larger discussion about the ways in which uh, communities and individuals can combat totalitarian mm -hmm. governments. So for the listeners, I'll just remind them that, oh, several years ago now, I interviewed Sarah Helms for her book about Robinsbrook. And if you're yeah. interested in this topic, uh, that interview is there and the book is wonderful. Uh, one of the things you talk about, Gina, in your essay is, is the gendered experience of violence in the camps. And I wonder if you might say something about that. So one of the great silences of the experience of women detainees in, in, in Nazi torture houses, concentration camps, prisons is a question of sexual violence. And it's only relatively recently that the field of Holocaust studies, not without a great deal of disagreement, internal disagreement and controversy, have begun to discuss questions of, of rape and other forms of um, sexual abuse in, in these contexts. In the case of communist Spanish women, there are a variety of reasons why women don't want to talk about their experience of, of sexual violence or sexual torture and often will say, well, such and such happened to the woman who was in the cell next to me. Or I heard a story of a woman and a daughter who experienced um, that they were raped by, by their uh, captors, but it didn't happen to me. Um, one is the separation of personal from political that's so ingrained in communist identity. You don't talk about your personal life. The other is, of course, something that's universal for survivors of uh, political sexual torture. And that is not wanting to be put forth as a figure who's been shamed to your family, your children and your community. However, uh, many of the Spanish women do talk about Sex, strongly talk about sexual humiliation, what it, how it's different to be a naked woman in front of a Nazi captor, um, what it meant to have your body parts groped, to undergo uh, certainly non-hygienic um, gynecological probing, um, the requirement to pick up any dirty, soiled underwear that may have left, been left by a, a previous prisoner. But the gender dynamic also, and this is, this is sort of a cliche in, in, in studies of the camps, but the deep bonds that were forged between women who would connect deeply, look out for each other, women of multiple generations, mothers, daughters, um, one woman who's died recently, who I've studied uh, closely, Neus Catala, spent from the time of her imprisonment until her liberation formed a, a kind of a dyad with a number, another woman named Titi Manton. And together they feel that their relationship and their uh, mutual support was the key to, to their survival. Hmm. 
So Sarah, you wrote about Mauthausen, and we've talked about this a little bit before in a previous interview. Um, but I wonder for those people who haven't heard that interview, can you say a little bit about Mauthausen and how Spaniards ended up in Mauthausen and um, a little bit maybe about their experience in that camp? Sure. Um, so similar to Ravensbrück, Mauthausen was not an extermination camp. It was a slave labor camp that saw a, a wide international prisoner population. The Spanish Republicans, uh, the majority of the Spanish Republicans who were deported to Nazi camps ended up in Mauthausen. It's a camp outside of Linz, Austria. And uh, the camp had a large granite quarry. And so in the, in the early deportations, the Spaniards were laboring in the quarry. In fact, they helped build the camp, was uh, basically built out of the granite that was, was quarried there on site. Um, but as the Spaniards sort of uh, gained a foothold at Mauthausen after scores died from the, from the abuses and the labor uh, in the quarry, some of them be managed to enter into different protected positions at the camp. Uh, this could be working in the kitchen or working in a, a Mauthausen, uh, the Gestapo office or working in the photography lab, someplace that was inside where they wouldn't have to suffer the, the extreme temperatures of the Austrian winters and were able to maybe eat a little bit more, have a slightly larger ration and in be this small subset of Spaniards who were able to get some sort of uh, different assignment, somewhat privileged assignment, now there's even a smaller subset that then were able to form, perform small acts that actually grew to be large acts of resistance. And I'm thinking of Juan de Diego and Casimir Clement, two men who both worked in the inner Nazi offices and were able to copy uh, documentation of prisoners, incoming prisoners, and the list of, of uh, killed prisoners, in, in particularly of the Spaniards who came and entered into the camp, documentation that they were able to guard and hide and, and to be able to keep until the liberation of the camp, which then served to show you know, future historians and scholars of this moment along with family members who, who, who were the, what was the prisoner population uh, of Spaniards in the camp. Um, and there's another, you know, very famous at this point, somewhat famous prisoner who came out of Mauthausen, uh, whose name is Francesc Boisch, who worked in the photography lab, who's become something of a folk hero at this point in Spain with two other Spaniards in the photography lab, Boisch was able to save negatives of uh, official Mauthausen photographer uh, photographs. And these would have been of, of people who had undergone torture, uh, of Nazi dignitaries, high command who came to visit the camp and of other installations in the camp. Um, Boisch was able to, with the help of a community of prisoners uh, who helped him smuggle those negatives out of the camp, he was able to actually take some of those negatives to Nuremberg where the photos served as proof uh, that Mauthausen existed and that the Nazi high command was well aware of the operations in the camp and of the, of the, you know, the, the exterminations and the tortures that happened inside the camp. So the larger population of Spanish Mauthausen prisoners obviously didn't have those kinds of privileged positions, but 
we learn a lot about the camp's operation and the prisoner population from these few uh, individuals who were able to, to perform these, these acts of resistance inside the camp. And you, so you write, and I, I don't have it in front of me, so I'm sure I'm not going to get your words right. But, but as I recall, you say something about that Mauthausen becomes a central point in the Spanish memory of this, of this period. So, so how is it that Mauthausen becomes such an important place for memory? Well, it has, and, and there are, I'm not the only one in the book who addresses the mm -hmm. place of Mauthausen in Spanish memory because, um, because there were a number of survivors who then were able to publish memoirs, uh, make films. Boish was able to, to, to smuggle the negatives out, so had a visual documentation of Mauthausen. As the years turned in post-war Spain, now we're talking about the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, and through the 90s and today, those representations, first by survivors and then by others who began to pick up the stories of the, the Spanish Mauthausen survivors began to be fodder for films, novels, other documentary films, um, a number of different representations, including graphic novels, uh, social media accounts that have now sort of made Mauthausen into a flashpoint in Spain's historical memory of, of Nazi violence. Uh, because, you know, these early representations sort of fed people's imagination um, in a small but significant way of how Spain was involved through these deported Spanish Republicans in the larger question of, of Nazi violence and, and the Holocaust. And if I can just add, it was, of course, the way the Mauthausen was the very clearest example that Spaniards could draw on Spaniards on the left to say we were victims of we were victims of fascism too. We are also victims of the Holocaust, which is another which is a, another polemic that the book attempts to address, and that is who who gets to count as a victim of the Holocaust as opposed to a victim of Nazi uh, Nazi concentration camps. Yeah, I was really struck in your discussion and in some of the other places in the book about the way in which some authors um, and, and, and producers of whatever genre of this is would would recognize or or highlight the fact that the Jewish experience was worse, while other authors would leave that unstated. And, and I wonder what that means to you. And I'll just, Sarah, you can go first if you want. How, how yeah. do you respond to that? No, I mean, I've grappled with this a lot in, in my research because you mm -hmm. don't want to dishonor what a victim feels about their own experience. Obviously, the, the, the torture, the slave labor, the abuses that Spaniards went through, and Spaniards were killed at Mauthausen as well. It's, it's difficult. You don't want to, to say to a survivor that their, that their experience um, somehow is diminished. But at the same time, the survivors themselves recognized that Jews who were deported to Mauthausen lasted for mere moments before they were ushered into the gas chambers, that Jews were killed en masse, that they were tortured in front of 
Spaniards or Spaniards were able to either witness by having overheard the tortures, the abuses that, 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 that convoys of Dutch Jews were experiencing. Um, so, so we have to separate the two experiences. As scholars, I feel it is actually our responsibility to say that the Spanish deportees were not subject to a policy of extermination. Um, they were they were killed and they were tortured and they were abused, but in a in a way they were also in 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 these exceptions where they were you know they ended up working and living in this in the concentration camp for four or five years and surviving till till the liberation. Their experiences have to be differentiated from from the Jewish experience of the Holocaust. So there are some authors, some Spanish authors who will use the word Holocaust, uh, survivors and non-survivors alike. And we did want, as we talked, talked about at the beginning, we did want to make sure that we differentiated what, um, what we understand as the extermination of European Jewry from experiences that Spaniards had in the concentration camps where they, ex they experienced Nazi violence, but were not subject to extermination per se. Yeah, so, so there's no way to talk about 33 essays. In, in a minute, I will give each of you a chance to perhaps highlight an essay that you thought was particularly important to you or particularly important. But, but first I'll say, um, what, looking at these as a group, what new, what do we learn from these essays as a collective whole that maybe we didn't know or we didn't think about um, before these essays were put together, um, what broad conclusions do you draw from this? Um, and I guess, Sarah, I'll let you start and then I'll go to Gina and, and then we'll continue. So Sarah? I have to say that when we started putting this, this book together, when we started, uh, when the essays started to arrive and we started to really dig into them, I, I learned so much more than I had anticipated I was going to learn being the editor of this book. I was fascinated by these chapters because of course, Gina and I are work on these topics, but we don't work on every single topic included in the book. So to my mind, the fact that I, as a, as a researcher who's focused on Mauthausen and the Spanish deportation um, was able to actually fit my own my own interest, my own research interest into this larger picture of, you know, beginning with philo-sephardism in Spain and anti-Semitism in Spain through other experiences. You know, we have a subsection on Nazis who returned to Spain and hid out during the post-war period. Um, and then on through propaganda, you know, the role of the Catholic Church, there were just so many different elements to this larger story that I think my takeaway from, from, you know, both reader and editor of this book is that this is a jigsaw puzzle that is almost endlessly, has endless pieces. And if you uh, start to see how those pieces fit together, you get a rich, rich portrait of what is happening in not only in Spain, but in the rest of Europe and, and beyond during what is, you know, obviously one of the most charged periods in our, in our you know, global history. So for me, it, it's been um, an, sort of a, a joyful learning experience to be able to edit these, these different contributions and learn from them 
um, learn details, you know, culled from the archives that I never would have had access to before editing this book. Gina, I don't know if you want to add to that. I would follow up by, by, by um, agreeing with everything that Sarah just said. I think that as the essays came in, and she's alluded to this, for me, the biggest surprise was that we had five essays that could stand in a section about propaganda. I think when we started the, the project, I don't think it had ever occurred to us that we had a, uh, that, that the question of wartime propaganda produced by the Franco regime, by the Spanish church and the Nazi state, how, um, how German and Spanish information campaigns during the war influenced each other, um, and how uh, they also explain the reasons for the persistence of Franco's reputation for helping the Jews, um, and, and, and the incredibly important role of, of the Catholic Church in this propaganda. Um, this material, this, this particular section, the fifth, the fifth section in the book, is incredibly rich, and I think it's incredibly rich for, for scholars who come from the representation and memory side of, of, of our themes, and that is um, the way in which uh, propagandistic language, rhetoric, and images so much influenced the way in which Germans and Spaniards understood each other, wanted to help each other, defied each other during the period of World War II. So for me, the propaganda chapter is one, of the, is one of the biggest surprises. I would say from the representation side, I was very moved by um, the, the poetic production. Um, we have essays about Ladino poetry um, written in response to the Holocaust, which is now an important field unto itself. There have been a number of books published recently about Ladino uh, poetry in response to the Shoah. Um, contemporary Spanish uh, theatrical and poetic production in Spain that's very recent. Um, what was also a surprise, I think Sarah and I knew a lot about prose and about cinema, um, but I had no idea that there were so many contemporary theatrical productions, uh, particularly about Matthausen. So these were some of the, the pleasant surprises, I think, that came to us as we started to work with the materials that we had received. Hmm. I think Gina said, uh, has, has indicated or has, has answered that question about the thing, the essays that stuck out to her. Sarah, do you have an essay or two that you found most interesting or surprising? Yeah, I, I, a couple that really stand out to me. One is um, Joseph Calvet's beautiful uh, essay about the refugees, Jewish refugees who fled over the Pyrenees um, during the Second World War and then were housed, uh, helped through safe houses, in, especially in Catalonia. And I'll mention that in particular because Joseph Calvet is a historian in, in, in Lleida, outside of Barcelona, who's been working on this topic for years and has, this is his first publication in English. Um, we were able to translate his chapter and really um, it's a, his, his accounts, he's been tracing these, these routes that Jews and that allies um, were able to take through the Pyrenees, um, you know, for the, for, for a number of years and to be able to publish his essay and, and his sort of life's work in this book was, was something that I felt, um, you know, gave me a, a great sense of pride. 
And another essay I'll just mention, just because it was such, such a startling and interesting essay, is the one on the Blue Division soldiers. These were Franco soldiers who fought with the Nazis on the Russian front. And we have a chapter by Boris Kovalev in which he translated Russian archival material, um, you know, very personal accounts of Russian citizens who interacted with Spanish soldiers. There's one very memorable one in which they describe how the Spanish soldiers were so, so hungry and desperate that they ate the townspeople's cats. Um, and these all came from Russian accounts. And again, having, this, having these translated materials, um, having access to this is just that it's been, it's been sort of an incredible boon, I think, to, to our research projects. And, I'm, and our hope is that that, that will extend to uh, readers of the book who will be able to have access to a, a lot of new material. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was really, so as I was reading, and the occupational danger of being an academic is that you tend to read the footnotes more than the actual chapters sometimes. Um, and so I, I think more or less, I'm fairly familiar with the canon of Holocaust literature. And in your book, I discovered a whole set of sources that I can't read, but are out there now and are valuable sources that, that probably are not very well known. Uh, and it will be interesting to see what people do with them uh, as, as, as they learn about them from your book. We've taken a lot of your time. Uh, and so thank you very much. I always end by asking the same question and, and I'll start with Gina and then I'll ask Sarah. Um, I've got lots of grading to do and not much willpower to do it. Um, so I wonder if you would be willing to suggest a book or two or a documentary or something that I and the audience can read something that you think will shed some light on the Holocaust or, or, or the Spanish experience or something that, that was important to you while you were reading this book, writing this book, sorry. Well, I, there are two films that mm-hmm. although they do not deal with the Spanish case directly, I think really encapsulate two particular experiences of Spaniards uh, during and Jews during World War II. One is the 2018 film Transit. It's a German drama film. Um, it's based on a 1944 novel, and it follows a refugee who's hovering, uh, who, who is impersonating a dead writer in order to flee a fascist state. Um, he is with a group of other refugees in this kind of fantastical place that is both uh, 1944 and the present. It, it feels like Marseille and how these refugees are desperate for documents that will allow them to cross over into Spain. Uh, the anxiety, the desperation, the suicides, and the importance of of, of getting the right combination of documents, I think was such an integral and anxiety and terror producing part of um, the experience of Jews who were trying to cross from France into Spain. So that's 2018 film called Transit, which I think is absolutely brilliant. And as for uh, um, the experience of um, men in particular, but also Republican women in, in the Nazi camp is a film called The Counterfeiters. 
that deals with a, uh, a Jewish um, man who is a counterfeiter by profession. He's captured and he ends up running a, and this is a true story, uh, a counterfeit lab where the Nazis are requiring him to make counterfeit money. The, the, the conditions of life, the way in which the men are put to production and their methods for sabotage and the risks that they take, I feel captures better than any other film that I've seen the way in which political prisoners were put to labor and attempted to maintain their humanity and dignity through labor sabotage. So those two films, although they're not about particularly about the Spanish experience, I think um, encapsulate two very uh, dramatic uh, elements of the Spanish World War II and Holocaust story. Thank you. And, and, and Sarah, how about you? Well, Gina's going to have you watch films and I'm going to send you to a couple of books that I thought uh -huh. were fantastic. And the first one is kind of, Kind, kind of kicked off, off this field, really, and also kicks off our volume, which is to say uh, the really formative book by Chaim Avni called Spain, the Jews, and Franco, which was published in 1982. Chaim was gracious enough to write the prologue, and a, a beautiful prologue, really, that brings together a lot of different threads that have to do with this, these converging um, different forces. And I think his foundational book is, is worth a read. Um, so, you know, some of the details have changed since the 1980s, but really the outline and sort of the way these different actors overlap uh, is still quite present in this, in this book. And the second book I would recommend is actually a graphic novel. Uh, it's called, in the Spanish, it's called Los Surcos del Azar. In the English, it's called Twists of Fate by Paco Roca. And this is a graphic novel that deals with La Nueve, which was the uh, force, the Spanish Republican forces that liberated Paris at the end of World War II and inspired and also based on the research that one of our contributors, Robert Cole, uh, wrote about in our book. This is a, an amazing graphic novel that deals with the idea of historical memory, of testimony, and of sort of the non-conventional history of the Spaniards who ended up, uh, you know, being part of World War II. They're still somewhat uh, unknown, uh, I think, in, in, in the world, but this, uh, this, this graphic novel does a wonderful job of showing us this history in a, in a quite readable and visual format. Well, those sound fascinating, um, and I will get them, and I will put them on whether it's Netflix or Amazon or whatever queue it is, and my family will be reaffirmed in their evaluation of me as a depressing human being. Um, so I thank you for that. Uh, but they sound great. So I wonder, is this, is this the end of your engagement with this topic, or do you have more research planned on Spain and the Holocaust? It's never the end, Kelly. It's never the end. There's always more. There's I'm... always more. Sarah might remember that we chatted over probably a good glass of wine about the possibility of doing a book on Francesc Voigt, the Adelaide photojournalist who salvaged um, Nazi photographs from Mauthausen, right? I... <laughs> I don't remember that conversation, but I, I would be delighted to work again with Gina. Um, I think we're both 
I, I'm certainly still engaged with the topic. I'm working on a, a, an edition of the first uh, concentration camp narrative from a Spanish survivor published in 1946 in Spain in a fascist newspaper in Spain. I'm in the middle of working on, on that edition that I hope will kind of bring a little bit more light into that topic. And I know Gina's hard at work as well. Yes, I'm trying to finish a book um, long, many years in the making about Spanish anti-fascist women from the beginning of the Spanish Republic through the death of Franco. And it's drafted, but my new project is about the Rivesalt's concentration camp in France that was really a, a laboratory for modern internment uh, where Jews and Sinti Roma, Spanish Republicans, and then later, uh, the camp was used to, to house uh, Harkis Algerians who had fought with the French um, in the Algerian war. So um, I'm, fascinated as, uh, I'm fascinated by this idea of mosaic of victims and how different people with radically different destinies, Jews destined for the gas chambers, Spaniards destined for hard labor, um, share the same geographies in the concentrationary system. So that's the next project. Well, you are of course right, Sarah. Academics by nature are never done. Uh, and it is a blessing and a curse. And I'll let you decide which that is at any particular moment. But I hope that when you're all are done with your various projects, I'll have a chance to talk to you again on the podcast. You've taught me much about Spain and the Second World War and the Holocaust. And that is of course the book we've been talking about. Uh, and uh, you can uh, get it at Amazon or from the publisher, and there'll be links to the publisher on the website. Uh, and uh, audience, I hope you'll be with us next time. Uh, we will be talking with um, Carol Rittner and John Roth about their new book, Advancing Holocaust Studies. But today it was Sarah Brennis and Gina Herman and Sarah and, Bren uh, Sarah and Gina. Thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate the time. Thank you, Kelly, for this great conversation. Thanks so much, Kelly.